You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hey, Jared, what's up? G'day, Drew. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. What's going on with uh, Decolonizing Sunday School this fall? Well, the name change must be official because Drew has said it on the podcast. Uh, We're partnering with The Warehouse in South Africa to be studying Emmanuel Katangoli, his brilliant text, The Sacrifice of Africa, A Political Theology of Africa. So if people have a heart to decolonize their faith and be exposed to other texts, Dr. Kangoli's text is a great place to start. How about you, Drew, in in terms of um, what we're doing in Subversive Seminary? What's up next? Yeah, well, we're excited to announce our new book for Subversive Seminary. We're going to start in September with Watershed Discipleship, which was edited by our good friend, Shed Myers. We believe that our commitment to anti-racist and decolonizing discipleship must include and take seriously our ecological crisis. And so we'll be starting Tuesday, September 7th in the U.S. and September 8th in Western Australia. And so folks that are hoping to engage in whether it be decolonizing Sunday school or subversive seminary, they can apply and we hope that we can join them in this journey this fall. All right. Well, I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. It is Richard Crane, who is professor of theology at Masai University. He's going to be joining us for a nonviolent atonement series, and he's written a really great essay from back in 2019. It's called Rethinking the Grammar of Atonement, Forgiveness, Judgment, and Apocalyptic Recapitulation. Um, And it's just a really uh, thoughtful essay there. Um, Right now, he's working on a manuscript with Cascade Publishers entitled God's Apocalyptic Apocalyptic Insurrection, Rethinking Salvation After 2020. Um, And you can also find just a range of other essays and academic journals, multi-author books and stuff that he's kind of contributed to as well. Um, One of the interesting things about Richard is that he is currently a JD candidate at Seton Hall University School of Law, Um, a kind of change up. Um, He's Mm -hmm. anticipating graduating from there in 2023. Um, This summer, he's doing a legal internship for Legal Aid of Milwaukee, where he's contributing to the legal representation of persons with low incomes facing eviction. Uh, Richard is married to Mary Crane, has two children and two grandchildren, and um, I'm just really excited to have him. He is both a friend, a colleague, but also a former professor of mine. And so, uh, Richard, welcome to Inverse Podcast. Thank you so much, Drew. Uh, Honored to be here. Richard, this is going to be fun. And uh, I'm tempted to start with the question, what kind of student was Drew, but I won't. Uh, I'll stick to the script. Instead, uh, we've been asking in this series um, uh, the the question, when do you first remember the gospel and or, because we realise that for some people it hasn't been the same thing, and atonement being articulated. Um, Do you have uh, uh, memories early as um, the gospel and atonement being articulated? And for you, were they one and the same thing? 
Well, growing up Baptist in the South, you can probably guess the way the gospel <laughs> and atonement were presented. Uh, and because of this, obviously growing up, I assumed that the core meaning of the atonement was substitute punishment. God is a righteous God who must punish sin to be true to God's own righteousness. Uh, and therefore the gospel was... Uh, in effect, you're guilty, you've been caught, you know, you're a sinner, uh, and, uh, but Jesus took the spanking for you, and if you take, I always explain it to my students this way, it, 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 it's a legal drama, right? It's crime and punishment in the criminal court, uh, and so first of all, God is just like Scooby-Doo, right? In every episode of Scooby-Doo, what does the bad guy say? But I would have gotten away with it, except for you meddling kids and that dog. So sin is great. The problem with sin is, is of course, the punishment at the end of the end of the road. So, you know, we are going to get caught. We have been caught. We are going to get punished. But the good news is Jesus took the spanking in our place. And if you accept the plea deal, you get to go to heaven and you don't have to go to hell. Uh, and so that animated, obviously, my understanding of Christianity, uh, even though as a high school student, I was straining against that because it felt like it didn't give me much more to live for. You know, once you got that afterlife insurance policy paid for, then there's nothing else to do but try to sell it to other people so that they, they will turn and not burn. And I know that's something <laughs> of a caricature, but it, it was essentially, yeah, what I grew up with. And I know that's probably... If you grew up in, in anything that remotely counts as evangelical, that's the odds are good. That's the way things worked out. So ultimately, you know, God saves us from God and God's mercy is juxtaposed over against God's mm. righteousness. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think too familiar for, for too many people, right? Yeah. That exact account that you described. So, so Richard, I'm really curious, you know, as you're thinking about remembering um, how the gospel and atonement were being explained to you growing up, like, what does this have to do with, like, our depictions of God? Like, how does that intersect with how God was depicted? Was God depicted in a way that was violent, retributive, nonviolent, restorative? And also, along with our depiction of God, like, what did that mean for our everyday lives, for Christian discipleship, uh, restorative, violent, retributive? Like, what were the implications for this kind of atonement theology? Yeah, I mean, that's really tough because God images and God representations would have been all over the board. Right. Uh, <laughs> because, because I grew up in a more Arminian-inflected rather than Calvinist-inflected uh, form of Christianity, uh, I grew up with a God really wants to save everybody. God really loves everybody. God doesn't really want to send anybody to hell, um, even though he's going to do it anyway. It's, it's, almost, <laughs> like God has, it's almost like God has to. Right, right. And so God is good, and yet somehow embedded in God's reality is this uh, ju justice as retributive, justice as punitive. Yeah. Uh, discipleship is an odd thing. Uh, one of the things that just amazed me as I 
the most transformative class I took as an undergrad was Jesus and the Synoptics. And it's almost like, mm. wow, you know, I never knew about this guy. Uh, <laughs> in the sense that Jesus in the Gospels is hollowed out. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is giving us very good advice, but it's not in, because, you know, salvation's right by faith. So that's a secondary dimension of the Christian life. And so discipleship was largely conflated into evangelism and personal spirituality. Uh, and one of my great jokes, of course, growing up, you know, in the early church, it was the martyrs, right, who were, were the paradigmatic disciples. Uh, in my context, it was anyone who professed their faith in Jesus Christ in a public forum. Uh, and like a very sarcastic video says, preferably on national television. And so, you know, a Tim Tebow, for example, and I'm not denigrating or dissing Tim Tebow, but Tim Tebow would have been seen as almost that's the pinnacle of discipleship, right? He talks about Jesus in public. And so that would have been kind of my discipleship. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, the, the question that kind of we've been going to next is, so how do you articulate the, the gospel now? And one of the things that's been um, particularly of interest um, for, for us and what Drew has sent through of your work, Richard, and we look forward to um, your upcoming project, uh, but how you, um, you do articulate a nonviolent understanding of atonement and yet some things that others have said, no, nah, we're not going to play with. You're like, actually, that's, that's still worth messing with. Um, mm -hmm. Would you talk us through how you articulate now um, atonement and the gospel um, that might uh, differentiate from um, some others who share the same convictions uh, around um, the necessity of a <laughs> um, of a Jesus who isn't hollowed out, a gospel that isn't hollowed out, and one that contains the contents of his life, and some of the stuff that others have done away with that um, you're you're playing with in really creative ways. Well, maybe my starting point, uh, maybe the book that transformed me the most. Um, you know, when I was in seminary, I thought I knew something about theology, and then I got to Marquette to do PhD work, and I realized I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, but the book that prepared me, that kind of set the tra trajectory, was Edward Skillabeek's book on Jesus. And it was the way in which Skillabeek lingered with the synoptic gospels. And Skillabeek said, you know, Jesus is the benevolent anti-evil one. He is the one who goes about doing good and delivering people from suffering. And uh, he had this great phrase, turn of the phrase, hum, God's cause is humanity's cause. And so I find the gospel in some sense already sketched in what we might call not properly eschatological, quasi-quasi-eschatological. As we turn to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, as, as the Israelites begin to dream of a post-exilic existence. They dreamed of a world put right all the way down. And in that world, empire is no more, right? Uh, 
I mean, we may, we may, we may be veering into what we call the intertestamental period with Daniel being written so late, uh, the crushing of the beasts that devour and trample and abuse. The Bible is an incredibly anti-imperial book. It, yes, it from is. Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is anti-imperial. We don't, we tend not to see that. But in some sense, there's this beautiful vision, right, of peace, of swords beaten to plowshares, the lamb and the wolf lie down together. There's this incredible banquet in Isaiah 25. God throws uh, this banquet for all nations and uh, brings people together. Uh, you have this, you have this beautiful vision: the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. You have the eschatological prophet of Isaiah 61 liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, good news to the poor. Uh, this beautiful text in Isaiah 65, I'm going to make Jerusalem a joy, you know, no more infant mortality. It's a world, uh, I always say salvation is food for the hungry, uh, right. the end of political oppression. And now when we move to the New Testament, what is the gospel? Jesus is the conduit uh, Origen used the term, I think, Otto Basileia, the, the presence mm -hmm. of the kingdom itself. Yeah, I always love that. Yep. Yeah, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the new creation invades the present, intrudes into the present. And, and what I see Jesus doing is everywhere Jesus goes, he puts things right. Mm. He not only heals broken bodies, he expels what were understood to be evil spirits, but he brings people to wholeness. He forms community. Uh, and so the gospel to me is, first of all, this hoped for eschatological future has somehow invaded the present, and we can be joined to Christ. Now, where I retain a lot of the, how is the world to be put right if we're not individually put right? And so some of the classical Protestant concerns, I, I, I most emphatically do not separate justification, sanctification, you mm. know, into a two-step dance. But that God's, per so to be saved in my, in my view is to be incorporated into Christ. So we are, if we're incorporated into Christ, a kind of uh, a bit of a theosis motif that I, mm -hmm. I haven't developed well yet, uh, we're also joined to the body of Christ, the church, but we're also, if Christ is the kingdom in the flesh, we're drawn into the kingdom. And so salvation takes the form, if we're drawn into the kingdom, we're given the gift of the eschatological spirit who draws us into a kind of intrinsically fulfilling way of life. And so I always say salvation is something you do. It's this sort of... Mm -hmm creative, generative, life-engendering way of life. Uh, you don't do this thing to earn anything. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that, my students always like, well, well, if you're supposed to do something, isn't that works righteousness? No, you're not earning anything. The gift is to be drawn into the sphere of new creation so that we are set free to live in such a way that our orientation is to engender life in others, to be the conduit of love, graciousness, goodness, so that humans flourish. That's great. Yeah. So that would be the way I guess I would say I'll understand the gospel. Uh, and then uh, I don't know if I should, should I tackle atonement now just per se, or does another question get to it? Yeah, you can jump in from, from there. 
Yeah, so so I, I see so many lines coming together. And so one of the great lines that get embodied in Jesus's life is God's opposition to the powers in this world that disorder life. Hmm. Um, so so the, my favorite biblical text is this really bizarre text about a man <laughs> who is blind and mute, and it's attributed to Satan. Um, and, you know, the, the, the worldview that some Jews, the more apocalyptic, I mean, I mean Judaism, or what we call Judaism, might be a little bit anachronistic, but the Jewish faith in Jesus's day is as pluralistic, right, as Christianity today. Sure, yeah. But the more apocalyptic strand sees the evil one not as somebody out in some spiritual realm, but the evil one is the one who hurts people, right? Uh, I mean, in some sense, you may consider it mythological to say terrible things happen because of Satan, but it beats the heck out of the insurance industry calling such things acts of God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so Satan is whatever, Satan is a symbolic of whatever forces. So it wasn't like empires are in the political realm and Satan's in the spiritual realm. No, Satan is the spirit that animates empire and its domination and crushing taxation. Uh, Jesus is the one, there, there's the other piece in the gospel is Jesus not only makes things right, the kingdom comes in to resist every power that dehumanizes, destroys, and crushes people. So if you read the gospels carefully, Jesus is setting himself against the patterns and practices of predatory lending that are stripping Jewish peasants of their lands, which really sends them into a spiral of death. Once you're a day laborer, you're not going to live very long because you don't find work every day, you get malnourished, you get sick, you die. And then the safety net is your family gets sold into debt slavery if you haven't paid off your debt. Jesus opposes the purity religion that is functioning. So this is why Jesus is butting heads with the Sadducees and Pharisees. Different as those two sects were, both of them read the key to Torah faithfulness as ritual purity. And Jesus, of course, emphasizes compassion. And so as I read the cross, uh, and so here, here comes my theology of atonement, is that Sin is not just our personal individual guilt. Is there the dimension of personal individual guilt for which we need forgiveness? Heck yes. But I always say the first meaning of sin is the total messed up human situation. We've all fed in some way. Whether we've bullied others, our cowardice, our silence in the face of evil or injustice or cruelty. Sin is this powerful, powerful chain reaction. And so collectively, we humans have created a world, you know, where you have everything from the sexual abuse of children to imperial domination to maldistribution of wealth, poverty, starvation. Jesus comes on the scene. And so this beautiful text I was, I was speaking about in Matthew, you know, he comes to bind up the strong man, right? Yeah. He comes mm -hmm. to break the capacity of these disordering powers to hurt people. 
Uh, he comes to set people free, whether it's a toxic inter... I mean, heaven knows we need to really recover from Jesus fighting against toxic religion uh, mm. because that's one of the disordering powers, right? Religious Religion in the service of domination. But I was, I was, uh, I started my essay by speaking of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, not so much his formal atonement theology, but his atonement practice. Yeah, that's There's something in King where he orchestrates a collision. I mean, the, 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 the eight clergymen who wrote the letter to King weren't wrong, were not wrong in being afraid that King's movement was meant. Uh, can I say one bad word? Do I get in trouble? Uh, oh, yeah. Be yourself. Okay. Was meant, Drew's heard me use this word before. I mean, King meant to stir up a shitstorm, right? Mm-hmm. Because King was trying to orchestrate a collision with the power. And he, when we talk about the phase of his work until Selma, Although his work after Selma, you could say the same, but I'm talking about now the, segre- the, the explicit Jim Crow segregation part. He meant literally to force the powers to make one of two decisions, either to repent and rectify the injustices. But if they did that, they acknowledged the justice of the demands being made. And they had to yeah. engage in at least some mode of, even if it's minuscule repentance, or to protect their sense of their own righteousness of the segregated order. And this is what you got, say, with Bull Connor in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I was actually born in Birmingham two months before all of this happened, by the way. Wow. Uh, so either the powers have to repent and rectify, or the powers have to double down and expose themselves and all of their evil. And so King meant to orchestrate these collisions. And in fact, of course, at both, in both Birmingham and Selma, it was the ugliness of the brutal of the brutal suppression that swayed national opinion. I read Jesus as in some sense. So if you, if you understand the last week of his life, he goes to the temple to delegitimate the temple in the eyes mm-hmm. of the Jewish people. Yep. He, in effect, says... Uh, these people are screwing you. Why do you need, why do you need it? You know, we read the story of the widow given the the coin. Oh, the heroic widow who gave Jesus is really saying you ruthless bastards. Yeah. You, You know, so in all of this, Jesus forces this collision. So for me, Jesus bears the whole weight of human evil sometimes gets concentrated in institutions. In this case, it's the Roman Empire. And there's something about Jesus where most of us, because we are sinners, to use the classical grammar of the faith that I affirm, we're all in this chain reaction. We're all neck deep in sin before we ever have a say in the matter. Uh, And we perpetuate the chain. We perpetuate the chain by revenge, counterviolence, the cowardice that doesn't speak out, uh, Jesus is the one who does not get sucked into the chain of evil. And this is where I have a bit of an Irenaean uh, strand. He is the second Adam. He is the one, he is the site, the location, the place within human history where human history is, is rectified, is put right. Uh, and so, you know, to be saved again is to be joined to this space, this site in human history. 
But I believe the, where, where I would maybe depart from wonderfully brilliant theologians, many, many more times more accomplished than me, those who would want to deny the necessity of the cross for salvation. Uh, you know, I think of, of Professor Weaver, you know, again, a wonderful sure. theologian. But I believe that the cross was necessary, that, that within human history, there had to be this space where the powers were decisively defeated. And of course, if you don't have eyes to see, it looks like Rome won, right? Rome once again crushes any resistance. And, and, and you know, I'm conservative enough to affirm that the resurrection is not merely a symbol of the rebirth of faith and the rebirth <laughs> That's of hope, right. but, that, but that Christ, that, that the resurrection is not a predicate of the disciples, it, it, Jesus yep. lives. In, in, in some eschatological mode, I understand not. But that those who follow Jesus are the ones who believe that, that God has dropped the decisive clue, that, that empire has already been judged and defeated, and we are the ones now who are called to live, to, be, to join with Jesus's mode of resistance. So anyway, that's a long spiel. Brevity is not my gift. Making things simple is not my gift, which is, which makes it hard to teach undergrads sometimes. <laughs> Bright kids they are, often. Before we move on, I want um, one of the things I was thinking about. I heard you once um, talk about uh, King in Birmingham and kind of connecting it to. Jesus's work and kind of the trickster that, you know, Satan has bait. Can you, can you just share a little oh, bit of that? Cause I think that that's just also a brilliant analogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that just fascinated me was reading Irenaeus. Irenaeus has a kind of Christus Victor uh, view yep. of the atonement. And, and there's the paradox, right? Uh, Irenaeus says that the atonement's nonviolent, right? God does not, stoop to Satan's level and use force or deception. And on the other hand, he uses violent martial metaphors. He, he, he crushes Satan's skull. Mm. Uh, but it's metaphorical. Uh, and so there's a, there's a sense in which for uh, Irenaeus, Satan's already defeated before Jesus goes to the cross. Because Satan, because Irenaeus says Satan defeated Adam and Eve by, by lies, deception, whereas Jesus exposes Satan to be a liar by the word mm. of God. You know, it, it, you know, he's, he's thinking of the famous temptation. But I was now now later variants of what we now call Christus Victor have all kind of trickeration, right? I think right, for right. Origen. Uh, Jesus just makes a deal with Satan. You can have me, but then when Satan gets him, you know, how can Satan stand light and goodness and truth? And it just blows him out of the water and he has to let Jesus go. And then you get, you know, your mousetrap analogies and your fish and hook. <laughs> and while those may be mythological, I mean, think about what King does in Birmingham, yep. right? This he lays a trap for Bull Connor. He knows exactly what Bull Connor is going to do. Uh, because Bull Connor lacks imagination. Bull Connor thinks the world is ruled, as did the Roman Empire, right? As did, you know, I don't know, recent U.S. presidents, you know, and, and many others who even <laughs> claim to be Christian. That yep. ultimately and finally, the power that rules the world is the power to kill, the power to dominate. 
I mean, one of the one of the most powerful biblical sections is is the Gospel of John's dramatic presentation of Jesus before Pilate. Yeah. And Pilate's like, 19. you know, I have the power to crucify you or set you free. And what what Pilate is saying to Jesus is, you little Galilean peasant, are you stupid? Don't you know that I that I hold the power that rules the world? And Jesus is like, do your worst, man. You know, you yourself aren't that powerful, though. You're just part, you know, you, the power comes to you from above. You're just part, you're just, you're just an underling on the chain of command. And then the Gospel of John plays up that it's Pilate who's afraid. Mm. Well, Bull Connor, being unimaginative like Pilate, recent presidents, um, and all of that, thinks it's the big guns, it's the power, it's the brutality, it's the domination. Uh, domination and if it's I, the literal if I, tank for bull connor right like he, yeah. he drove around a tank yeah like, he did in, in birmingham uh yeah. those things are in the civil rights museum there in birmingham yeah. uh those tanks the, the birmingham pd used and he knew he was going to react that way and forced connor to come out and show the system in all of its brutality and evil fire hoses, children in prison. And then he, and you know, now, now one thing I'll point out, right? I mean, King is not a lone hero, right? The civil rights movement, mm -hmm. he's, he's one player. Civil right. rights movement doesn't happen without sit-ins in North Carolina long before King, without Fannie Lou Hammer, without Joanne Gibson Robinson, mm -hmm. who had organized the African-American women that made possible the Montgomery bus boycott. So he's not a lone hero. I'm just drawing from King's writings here. Um, but it is that element, I, I think, of trickeration where, you know, C.S. Lewis was great, right, with the deep magic and the deeper magic. The witch doesn't mm -hmm. know the deeper magic. Uh, the powers that rule this world abusively, not, not, not all powers, not all people have political powers are this way, but they think that the final, what ultimately rules the world is violence and the power to kill. But as soon as someone's not afraid of the violence, they, they are in themselves in some way disarmed. If somebody says, do your worst, kill me, I trust a greater power, the power that raises from the dead, they have nothing. Um, and so in some sense, I think, there's, I think there's that dimension to the cross that you then see embodied you know, Gandhi may not have been explicitly Christian, but I'll I'll uh, I'll follow Justin Martyr here and say, yeah, he sort he sort of was a, he sort of was the uh, I mean he was he was a disciple in 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 in, in what he did in he, in uh, India, um, and so yeah, it, every time uh, there's that cunning creativity that outflanks the powers who think the world can be ruled by intimidation, bullying and all of that. Uh, so yes. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that because I've always been one who has like, I, I, I always hear Western theologians kind of just kind of conflate the kind of trickster kind of action as just deceitfulness, right? And that's right. when they conflate it. And I think it's missing it all together. And I think that totally true. when you get into like, you know, um, much more global and indigenous community and stuff. This trickster figure is a much more complex way of understanding than just deceitfulness. And I think that we're right. just missing it sometimes. And so I really, I I've always loved that analogy 
of, you know, um, the movement there, right? Project C, um, setting mm -hmm. up a trap, right? And outwitting Bill O'Connor and, and the powers that be there in, in what was then bombing him, right? And so I think, yeah, um, yeah that's really powerful. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about like, so what we like to do is to help folks uh, look under the hood, so to speak, right? And see what we're working with. You already mentioned Irenaeus and other, but, but can you tell us a little bit about like, who are some of your uh, sources? Where, where do you begin when you are articulating a nonviolent atonement? Who are you going to? Who's in your head? Who are you dialoguing with? Wow, wow. That's, that's almost, um, yeah. you know, it's almost as if I've read so many people, I don't right. even know how to begin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not yeah. everyone, obviously, but if there's key yeah. people that come to mind that are maybe shaping you, yeah. I mean, I would, I would, long not follow, say, a Jürgen Moltmann's um, mm -hmm. Hegelian view of God and the cross. Uh, I, I could hear that in your articulation of, I, I could hear Moltmann's um, spirit of hope in your articulation yeah. of um, the eschatological spirit. Um, that, that excited yeah. me to no end. Yeah. And the other place Moltmann is here is in this sort of double, in the latter part of my article where I talk about the cross and forgiveness, is there's a kind of double solidarity on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. so that Christ enters into solidarity with those who deserve, you might say, to be God forsaken. He actually suffers what those, he suffers the abuse that abusers deserve. Abusers dehumanize and shame others but the abusers actually deserve to be treated the way they have treated their victims. And then Christ enters into a kind of a solidarity with, with victims. Uh, one of the ways I try to retain the cross and forgiveness. Yeah, this is important. Is that if God forgives, so a lot of people say, well, God doesn't need the cross to forgive and God doesn't, but if God forgives as a kind of verdict <laughs> from on high, you end up with forgiveness as something akin to blanket amnesty. Mm. And that's very good news for perpetrators of injustice, right? We're just going to wipe the slate clean, uh, let bygones be bygones, bury the hatchet and move on while I talk about the past. Uh, so that I read forgive, I read that the, the purpose of the cross is not merely to secure forgiveness, but the kind of forgiveness that holds people, all of us, you might say, to account. So yeah. that, you know, my evangelical students, wonderful kids they are, tend to think of repentance as interior sorrow. Sorrow. In fact, in fact, there's a kind of obviously dualism in, in Western soteriology that goes way back. Uh, but that forgiveness is actually includes within itself judgment. Hmm. Uh, that judgment to forgive is to say something needs forgiving and it's to call it out. And that repentance is not merely to feel sorry, but to act, to rectify, to put right. And so I see the cross as the space where in a way that I can never, you know, explain what we call incarnation. Uh, the, I, I affirm it with the church, but that in some sense, and here's a little Moltmann in there too, right? Some sense God enters into 
the play of suffering, abuse, being wronged. And God forgives from inside of human history. Yeah. And God makes right from inside of human history. Uh, surprisingly, uh, and everyone raises their eyebrows when I tell them how much I appreciate Anselm. Because Anselm is sometimes the whipping boy. You know, Anselm's the one who, on a first reading of Anselm, Anselm's the one who had a God who needed blood to compensate God for God's offended honor. And yet Anselm paradoxically deconstructs the mm -hmm. medieval framework he uses it because Anselm says God needs nothing from us. And that God's honor is actually for the sake of um, the blessedness God intended for us. And so one of the things I find wonderful, and now, now to, uh, to, to kind of retrieve, appropriate Anselm, you got to do some work, right? You can't That's just right. take Anselm <laughs> as he is. Uh, but Anselm asked the question that a lot of people get offended by, right? Is it fitting? Not, it, not can God do it, but is it fitting for God to remit sin by mercy alone, or should God require satisfaction or punishment? Now, satisfaction and punishment are two totally different things for Anselm, sure. right? But Anselm, what, but think about it this way. Recast that into the question of gross injustice. Think about, you know, the, what we're struggling with as a nation right now uh, around race and the depth of our sin. I mean, just the depth of our sin in which we, are, we at least those of us who count as white in America, are entangled. And to just say, let's let bygones be bygones, let's clean the slate, let's just move on, uh, is not only a way of ignoring the sins of the past, but the, the sins of the past that are now the sins of the present. That's right. Uh, that we don't want to see. And so for Anselm, the key is what is the point of Christ's death, but the rectification, the putting right, the rectitudio of the cosmos. Mm. And so I find Anselm, I find Anselm is now like, like, I, I, I'm even close to Anselm as a great intellect. He's a person of his time. I'm a person of mine. Hmm. But that Anselm really is, seems to be trying to say what happens on the cross is somehow a restoration of, of justice, of right relations. Uh, and so I, I find in Anselm, if, if we recast things, what is the disordered cosmos? It's not just humans sinning individually, vertically against God. It's the, it's the colossal mess we've made of things. Mm -hmm. And so we need something that begins the process of putting things right, making amends, healing. Uh, so, so I guess I have, a the, I, I have an atonement theology and a soteriology that calls the church to be a kind of activist community, mm -hmm. uh, to struggle for justice, to struggle for human dignity, to struggle for people. And that's what it means to participate in God's reign intruding in. Richard, I, I find this fascinating. Um, uh, uh, Drew and I have been taking our um, inverse subversive seminary um, space uh, through uh, Weaver's The Nonviolent Atonement. And um, uh, David Bentley Hart, who's been an influence nice. on me, um, and uh, as has um, orthodoxy um, generally, uh, 
Um, and that's part of my fascination with your articulation of both Adam and Christ as a collective uh, uh, archetype for all of creation and the interconnectedness of, of all things. Yes. And um, uh, I, I find that element really fascinating. But uh, surprisingly, David Bentley Hart, um, as a Eastern Orthodox theologian, has an essay um, of appreciation in part of Anselm, and it's on these exact lines. It, it's it's actually this exact point. And I drew on I drew on Hart's reading of Anselm. Yeah, right. Um, so it's true confession. I'm not smart enough to have fucked that up all by myself. I, I am indebted to Hart. <laughs> so what is fascinating about that is um, I hear you articulating the difference between dismantling theologies um, or deconstructing theologies and dismantling systems that were a part of. And I, I loved your point. And um, uh, for so many of us around the world, um, we're thinking of South Africa at the moment um, with, with what's happening. And uh, for, for such a long time, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission was held up as a, a global model. And yet the economic re ramifications of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission were left out. And so you had a, a, a social healing that didn't become an economic healing, which means that you have the majority of um, those who were under apartheid um, uh, still in the same economic realities, while those who actually governed apartheid have literally been shown amnesty if they confessed their sins in public and that amnesty was available. And yet there's been no transformation. And all, what I hear you doing is actually articulating that um, while um, God might not need that, um, there is something inherently unjust about forgiveness as amnesty for oppressors uh, without transformation of the situation of the oppressed, without actually naming the, the granular of what's going on for the oppressed. And it's, it's almost South Africa's current situation is an ongoing metaphor for when a gospel gets distorted and aimed in one direction and becomes abstract, that we forget the past instead of healing the past. And they're the things that are coming up for me as you're entering in. And ironically, Anselm might actually um, be helpful if, um, yes, um, we deconstruct that theology, which um, uh, we've been doing in our spaces. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's get to what it is to be a community that actually dismantles those systems and takes part in a different way of being. That's exciting to me. That that's that's really that's really enlivening to me. So, Richard, on that, um, when you articulate this, or even in response to um, some of the pieces you've written along this, um, what are the passages that give you the most grief? What are the passages that, whether it's um, your students in class and they're like, um, no, 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 uh, God did have to take it out. Uh, don't dismantle Anselm, um, just rearticulate Anselm. Um, what are the passage where uh, you have, whether it's... Um, uh, students or, or people you worship with on a Sunday or in conversation with other um, faculty and academics, what are the passages that really give you grief when it comes to an understanding of um, both the nonviolence of God revealed in Jesus and the nonviolence of what we're to be as a people taking part incorporated into the life of Jesus today? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer um i love my students but my students often don't know the bible well enough uh, <laughs> they, 
<laughs> Let alone Those answer, are 15 right? favorite Bible verses upon which their whole theology is constructed. I, I, I do this thing in the first few weeks of class, and I say one of my rules is do not say the Bible says. Uh, because <laughs> anytime you say the Bible says, uh, you're already premising your interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and so I'll identify just a few. Where my students usually go to is the Old Testament sacrificial system. So they assume that the Old Testament sacrificial system is simply substitute punishment, right? You know, somehow, you know, bulls and goats and lambs and I guess grain too uh, gets punished in our place. And that's how God, so I try to explain to my students, no, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system does, is never systematically interpreted, right? You don't have a systematic theology. You have metaphors, right? You have metaphors mostly of covering and purification uh, that are logics in some ways alien to substitute punishment. But, and, and I try to help my students understand you're reading the sacrificial system through the lens of a later theology. Uh, now, probably the text that most people would go to uh, would be, I think, Romans 3.25, where the Greek is hysterion, and is that propitiation, or is that... Um, expiation, right. Oh, gosh, I can't think of the word. I've gone... Expiation. Expiation, yeah. uh-huh. Right, right, yeah. Uh, again, not as carefully theorized as you might think. You know, there, there's this long Western tradition of reading Romans as Paul's systematic theology rather than <laughs> Paul doing theology on the fly, which is what the whole New Testament is, theology on the fly, right? It's... Yeah. it's it's not, okay, now I'm going to write down my whole theology. Uh, uh, the for a text, community, not for a library. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably the text in Galatians, you know, about Christ became a curse for us. Uh, and then God made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, those yeah. texts lend themselves to kind of a penal interpretation, but I don't think they have to be interpreted in that way, right? Uh Christ really does step in, in. In other words, what do systems of sin do but legitimate themselves, right? They buttress themselves with divine legitimacy or some kind of moral legitimacy so that the systems say that whoever we consider criminals are really criminals. They're really guilty. Our judgments are God's judgments. And so to resist those perverse systems that have legitimated themselves as divinely sanctioned, divinely blessed, uh, and being a Southerner, I know that well, uh, the Southern belief that our way of life is, that, you know, the whole lost cause mythology and all of that, our, our way of life is the uniquely God-blessed way of life. Jesus, by butting heads with the temple establishment, is treated as one who was sinner, who was cur accursed by God, a blasphemer, rejected. The only way to resist those systems is to be condemned and accursed by the terms of those systems. And so in this sense, I think, again, Jesus steps into the cluster, you know what, that sin has created in the world and absorbs its violence and cruelty and injustice. He steps into, so that, that solidarity, right? He steps into the place of those who deserve judgment, condemnation, and divine rejection. Uh, but that is not God punishing him. 
that is God working through Jesus to break the power of these systems, to expose them, as Irenaeus says in, about Satan, in their true colors, you know, again, as King did in Birmingham and, and mm -hmm. all the, all the, who were with King. Uh, so that would be, those would probably be the texts that would be most problematic. In other words, when I see, uh, we're going to just, uh, one of the things I try to get away with too is any, no, no, no singular theory of the, the atonement can be an all, a total. So Christus Victor <coughs> sometimes has a harder time, even though I just explained it partly within the logic of Christus Victor. Uh, but nonetheless, sometimes those texts, I think we have to take seriously the sacrificial motifs. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, but the sacrificial motif is that he gives himself to the, uh, the uttermost in fighting for humanity. So anyway, I hope that, hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, one of the things I've appreciated about you, um, Richard, is you, I feel like, You've always been, and especially maybe even more so in the last couple of years, just been grappling with the way that um, American Christianity in particular, American theologies, white American theologies have been accommodating all kinds of, you know, domination, white supremacy, all of that, right? I mean, that's something, in fact, sometimes I feel like you're tortured by this, right? I mean, that you hold it very closely. And so I'm curious, where do you start when you're challenging these theologies that accommodate these kind of oppressive, dominating, colonizing, supremacist cycles of violence, all of that? So where do you begin as you're kind of grappling with that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, first and foremost, uh, for persons who, now, again, that, that now when I say this about those persons, uh, one of the things I grapple with are, are where are my blind spots, right? Where are the ways that mm. I still inhabit a white supremacist imagination. I mean, the one benefit of growing up in the South just after the end of literal Jim Crow segregation is that as I came of age, I couldn't really pretend to innocence. Uh, whereas many of my Northern white evangelical students believe in their innocence, right? Yeah. And so the hardest, as I tell my students, uh, it's not the potholes you see that are the dangerous potholes, right? It's the potholes you don't see. <laughs> and so to even realize that the theologies we've inherited have been so deformed to accommodate white supremacy, slavery, colonialism, um, particularly patriarchy, right? I mean, I grew up with race and patriarchy uh, as the twin pillars. And when it was no longer respectable to be explicitly white supremacist, my Baptist culture in the South could still be explicitly patriarchal by, by golly, right? Uh, yeah. And proudly so. Uh, but obviously, in some sense, there has to be a kind of conversion of the imagination. And to really help us see that, first of all, the more we picture salvation is mostly vertical, right? Uh, yeah. That salvation puts right my legal relationship with God so I don't have to get punished. To the extent that we see salvation that way, we don't have to see salvation 
as requiring the rectification of my relationships with others and not just my personal relationships, but those relationships as they are situated within all of these systems of domination. Um, as I've been reading, you know, I, I think I, I don't know if I pronounced your name right. Kristen Kobus Demetz's book about Jesus and John Wayne and mm. all the, th it's almost like she's validating so much of what I've always sort of seen, but had the hardest time actually, holy crap, it really is this bad. Mm. Uh, is the other piece though, ironically, is that this white supremacist theology can make us apolitical but then, you know, sometimes what we do is we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is, our left theological hand know what our right theological hand is doing. The individualizing theology also hollows out ecclesiology, right? Mm -hmm. if, if relationship with God is sort of a personal individual unmediated, well, a kind of white nationalist America is uniquely God-blessed. America is uniquely God's messianic agent. I mean, I think about George W. Bush, who on the anniversary of September 11th used the Gospel of John's language to speak of America as the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not extinguished it. Uh, if you really, I mean, let's say somebody like Billy Graham, you, you know, you, mm -hmm. you, at first glance, you think Billy Graham just preached an apolitical gospel of personal salvation. But if you actually <laughs> go back and read Billy Graham's sermons, he wanted to get people saved so they would be better Americans to resist communism. That's right. In the Cold War. Messianic yep. mission. Besides that, that and Billy Graham's desire to rub elbows with power. Mm. Uh, I'm not quite the admirer of Billy Graham that, that many people are. Uh, but then for Billy Graham, uh, there's also the sense that once the civil rights movement, I mean, Billy Graham was not a hater. But Billy Graham was, oh, oh man, you guys are going too fast, too far. Yeah. Uh, it's fair to say that Billy had one foot on the accelerator and one foot at the brake, on the brake yes. at the same time. And there's yeah. enough to point out in both camps where you're like, um, both are true at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the paradox, too, of, say, Jerry, the elder Jerry Falwell, hmm. uh, who in the 1960s, the call of the gospel... It, ministers are supposed to preach the gospel and not get involved in politics. In other words, he was castigating King and the civil rights movement. Uh, he himself explicitly being segregationist at that time. But mm -hmm. then in the 1970s, separation of religious and religion and politics is a lie to keep Christians from running their own country. Right. Um, and, uh, and of course, we, we all know the moral majority was in part a backlash against civil rights. Uh, and then Bowell also is probably in, I pray for everyone's eschatological salvation, but he does need some purgatory time just for raising the sun he raised. But I, I tell, the, <laughs> tell the truth. Tell the truth and shame the devil, all right? That's what yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. But yeah, but but that also, see, so, so it lets you say uh, we're apolitical. The gospel is a pure go vertical gospel. But then on the other hand, America displaces the church. And then, of course, that vision of America is going to be the vision of a normatively white dominant culture. Uh, and it's not so much that it's explicit white supremacy, like we hate, but it's the idea that this is a culture we white Christians should be running and everybody else is permitted to be here if they 
understand that we represent we represent the right kind of people, God's kind of people, and our way, you know, our ways are God's ways, our thoughts are, are God's thoughts, and why don't the rest of you get with the program? And so it's, you know, all of that's, all of that's in play too. We own human beings in godly ways. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's that mentality. Like, we know how to do slavery, right? Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Goodness. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's amazing that we always find ways to bless and sanction whatever we think is our, our preferred culture. The yeah. Bible is a very flexible book. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, Richard, um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, as a joke uh, for the uh, final um, eschatological salvation of our um, four will, um, but we're aware that... Uh, you start to ask questions about does your atonement theology look like what you get in the life of Jesus? And suddenly you have to deal with your eschatology, your your understanding of how everything's going to wrap up. Is it going to wrap up in a way that looks like the life of Christ or is the life of Christ just like a a mechanism uh, to some bigger movement that actually reveals uh, God to be something different we see in Jesus? In your new work, I'm very aware that um, you're playing with uh, the intersection of of those two things. Would you um, dare to sketch without too many spoilers um, uh, (laughs) the role of uh, um, how we understand the apocalyptic, how we understand uh, eschatology, how we understand the church and this, this business of atonement we're playing with at the moment? Oh, oh gosh, when you say spoiler, like, okay, now I, I got to tell you how it's all going to go down, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. You know, I don't know, except, you know, a, a, a lot of people wrestling with nonviolent atonement wrestle with the image, obviously, of the rider on the white horse, who, as I always tell my students, looks a lot like Legolas in Lord of the Rings, right? He's riding across the field and decapitating <laughs> orcs right and left, you know, with every swing of the blade, there goes 15 orc heads flying. Um well, obviously, Revelation, right, is, is obviously a highly symbolic book. Uh, it's mostly concerned about some kind of ultimate defeat of the Roman Empire, which didn't exactly happen that way, um, <laughs> oddly. And so I would have to think that, you know, th- th- there's somehow I think the violent imagery is trying to say that what we will have is a power of God that in some sense puts an end to the ability of oppressors to oppress, abusers to abuse. But maybe because of the constraints of our imagination, again, we always imagine that as superior butt kicking, right? So Jesus is going to be a superior butt kicker to all the evil butt kickers in history. I mean, that's the great American, you know, Walter Wink, right? Myth of redemptive violence. Mm. And ultimately, evil and violence can only be put down by superior violence. And I loved, I loved Wink's, he asked his grandson, right? Why do the good guys always win? Well, they're better fighters. <laughs> so that ultimately and finally, there's nothing about the power of goodness, truth, and love to prevail. Goodness, truth, and love have to have the added oomph, just like Popeye has to eat his spinach to defeat Pluto. And so somehow... It's the gospel of the Avengers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So somehow there has to be something about God's truth, goodness, and love, the presence of which 
is in some sense disarming, whether that's voluntary or involuntary, that there's, there's, there's a power of truth there uh, that somehow breaks, and, and when, I, when I talk about break the stranglehold, I can, we could even zoom that down into an individual level, right? That somehow God shows us ourselves in such a way that we have to face our lies, our illusions, our self-deceptions, our false narratives. Uh, that God's way too powerful. It, it's only it's only creatures on the finite level that have to, or think they have to defeat something violently, right? God's mm-hmm. God's not God's transcendent. God's not on our plane. Uh, we're so whatever the eschatological conclusion is, it's going to be consistent with. I always tell my students we have no no freaking clue. The Bible gives us only the faintest of symbols and images, but I said my suspicion is just as uh, what we as Christians refer to as the coming of Christ, the incarnation was a surprise, and yet we say, but that's how the story should have continued, Hmm. that whatever is eschatological culmination and I certainly hope for eschatological culmination because if we only if we only bet our hopes on the human ability to forge some sort of future just society, it doesn't do jack for the dead, right? For the for mm-hmm. those who were martyred, persecuted, abused, right? And that's why I hold on to this very conservative hope that literal is not the right word, but I, I, I'm not a Protestant liberal who thinks all of this. Uh, you know, I think Serene Jones, well, the resurrection is just a symbol that love triumphs over evil. Well, unless there's some yeah. eschatological power that makes it so, it doesn't. Yeah. And, and that doesn't explain the actions of the early church. Right, exactly. No, no one's going out to get martyred for a symbol. Right, exactly. No one's, no one's going to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have to believe that there's, there's something where, but at the end of the story, we'll say, we didn't see that coming, but that's exactly how the story should have ended. Like, you know, a good movie, right? A good movie has a surprise ending, but you find that ending deeply satisfying after you ponder it a while. You're initially befuddled. So that's my, that all I can say is that's my hunch. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, I, you know, n- nowhere in the Bible do we get a, a, a part of the Bible called, now this is how it's all going to, play out at the end of the story <laughs> you just get just get images and symbols and metaphors and such as that and evil might have got away with it if it wasn't for that meddling messiah and mm-hmm. his people yeah and, and, and his, <laughs> his people yeah. richard this has been fantastic thanks um well, thank you guys for having so me so much We'll open it up to our um, Patreon community for, for questions in just a bit. But uh, we, we've been saying at the end of um, uh, these interviews in this series that we're so aware that um, atonement, while it might seem academic for some, uh, it is internal for so many. Uh, there, there is uh, uh, painful um, uh, things that we've embodied, messages and stories that have become so distorted that um, lead us away from the beauty we see in the life of Jesus instead of towards it. Um, I'm wondering if you feel comfortable, uh, would you close out this time before we go to Q&A by praying for, now I know not all professors pray, so this is an assumption, um, but but would you be prepared to pray for our listeners? 
Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, and sometimes I pray and sometimes I don't. I'm always struggling with that versus using class time and being a good steward of class time. But here, <laughs> here Messiah is not paying me, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Holy God, thank you for your incredible goodness and particularly the way you connect us with one another, uh, new friends and old and bind that, that you've drawn us into life and, and, and the joy of interacting with one another and the joy of struggle in theology, right? Struggle to try to articulate some small glimpse of your beauty, your truth, your goodness. Um, God, be with everyone here, everyone who uh, is also seeking you, seeking to be faithful to you, seeking to be agents and conduits of of a goodness so much greater than ourselves, but a goodness that is transforming us into its image. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Yes. All right. So it's officially uh, Q&A time. We can open up some space. I did say I was going to share something that was only going to be for the Patreon community. Um, so this, Richard, anything, if you really want to go wild now, this is your moment. Um, okay. But I'll share a quick story. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.